Your lifestyle choices are impacting the functionality of your brain. Technology is trumping our DNA. But it's not rocket science, it's neuroscience. And we're about to go deep into it. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to The Thinking Leader. Marcus, who is our guest today? Hello, Bryce. Our guest today, I've been so excited about having her on the show. So when our guest lost her enthusiasm for the talking cure over 25 years ago while completing her master's in clinical psychology, she took the road less traveled and immersed herself in the fascinating world of how lifestyle choices impact brain function. Now, brain function, it's something we're all about on The Thinking Leader. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. Delia McCabe, who teaches resilience and mental well-being to conscious companies across the globe. Delia, it is wonderful to have you join us today. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you, Bryce. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, you are right in our wheelhouse here because as, as you may know, we are all about trying to help people think and reclaim the role of active thinker as opposed to letting others think for them. And so uh, I love talking about the human brain. I love looking into neuroscience and cognitive psychology and unpacking how we think and how we can think better. What is, what is the most important thing that you share with your clients, Steely, when, when you start talking to them about how we, how we think? One of the things that I'm very clear on when we start a discussion is that the brain is the greediest organ that we own. And that means that our neural energy actually has to be used carefully. And this is a huge challenge in today's world because most people do not know this and they don't know how to action this knowledge. So they spend their neural energy um, on all sorts of activities and ideas and escapades, you know, especially on, on technology without understanding that every single time they make a decision, they make a choice, every single time they focus on something, they're using neural energy. And it's no wonder, and I know we're going to discuss this later, that so many people are feeling exhausted at the moment because our neural energy has just run out after three years of ongoing upheaval and also with the way the world has changed. So we've kind of like got a perfect storm on our hands um, in relation to, to neural energy. So that's the first conversation we have. Neural energy needs to be guarded. I love that I, idea. It's so important too, because there's so many distractions in the world today. And I think, you know, when we, when, when the digital revolution began in the 1980s, there was there was there was a an unexamined assumption that m giving people access to more data, more information in real time as much as possible was a virtuous thing. And honestly, the first time I remember hearing someone challenge this was actually in the context of the new generation of fight military fighter aircraft that were coming out at the time. And the F-16, as, as Marcus knows, was, was one of the first really digital uh, aircraft that the U.S. deployed. And I remember that there were some cognitive psychologists who raised the question, is all of this technology going to make these pilots more effective or is it going to overwhelm them with information and make them less effective? And that, that stuck with me. Um, I was still in college when I heard that, but it stuck with me because every time I became a, I became a tech reporter then and started covering the the, the Silicon Valley uh, first dot com revolution in, in the 1990s. And every time I heard about a new technology, a new 
a new app, a new service that was going to bring more information to more people faster, I would think back to that and say, hmm, is this necessarily a good thing? Well, you were definitely ahead of the curve in having that thought because that overload of information that a lot of people confuse with knowledge and wisdom has not served us because there's something that, that I always mention to people is that we by nature are creatures that collect things. You know, we collected things so that we made sure that during a really cold winter, we'd have enough food. We collect things to keep, to help us feel like we're safe. And we do exactly the same thing with information. And I know that I am guilty of this. When something interesting <laughs> crosses my desk, yeah, I think we all are. You know, it crosses your desk. That looks like a great article. I don't have time to read it now. I put it in a folder. Um, I call this infobesity because we are collecting information in, a, in the same way that we collect surplus energy on our bodies. And I don't know who coined the term infobesity, but I love it and I use it all the time because it's a huge challenge that. Because every little bit of information that your brain knows is out there and that you haven't yet claimed or haven't yet digested and absorbed is sitting there taking up neural energy as well. So we actually need, you know, when we use the word digital detox, I think people look at it from a very simplistic perspective. Just put your phone down. It's not as simple as that. It's about basically overalling the whole way that you look at this avalanche of information and find a way to categorize what's really important and ignore what's not. And this becomes a problem because there's now a neural pathway established to collect information. So it's a it's a challenge as as humans with our human brains. You know, it's kind of like getting the chicken to um sorry, getting the fox to to guard the chicken house. You're getting your brain to say, hold on a second, we don't need more information, but your brain's also going, hey, but I may need that. It may come in, you know, may may, may become important. That was that's one aspect of what your thought was, you know, Bryce, about that that information. The other thing is what is the accessing of the information doing to our actual neural structure? And that is, you know, the dopamine mm. hit that everybody talks about. Constantly exposing ourselves to this information is actually changing the structure of our brain. And I remember reading a book many years ago by Nicholas Carr, and it's called Into the Shallows. And I would recommend that you read it and that you, you know, that the listeners get this book. It's one of those books when every second sentence, nearly every sentence you underline, underlining because Nicholas speaks very clearly about what's happening with this avalanche of information. And we're basically allowing ourselves cognitively to, to thrash around in the shallows. We're no longer diving deeply into topics, deeply into information because of this overload. And as I said, you know, from the beginning of our chat, this neural energy that we're expending is finite. It's not, it's not infinite. Yeah, that, that's so true. And going back to what Bryce's comment about fighter pilots, I sense that today we're all fighter pilots. There's so much information coming in to our children, to us in adulthood, and there's this intense level of technology where I'm sure when you were kids like me, we had the TV and that was it. And that was restricted by mum and dad to a certain number of hours a week. Yes. And that was my information other than reading the paper that dad left around. My other information was gathered from listening and talking to other humans and interacting with them where now, as you said, it's not just a digital detox via the phone. We are so multi-axis for technology from all angles coming in at such a pace. It's really difficult to shut it off to the level that needs to be. And the impact it's having, as you mentioned, neurally must be huge. And from children as well. So how, how, do, you, how do you sense this is affecting the children of today and our future? Marcus, this is a really sobering part of, part of the conversation because I think, as I mentioned to you at our original chat, um, I had a really very sobering moment and it was a, a moment that felt visceral to me when I was standing in a queue waiting for um, entry into a store in Australia and there was a little girl in front of, in front of me and my mum and she was waiting with her dad in her pram and she must have been about two and a half, three years old and her dad was on his phone, which isn't unusual, um, but she was on a little device and she was so immersed in this, in this this device, she glanced up at me really briefly and then she glanced down. And suddenly it hit me, really, I, I haven't had a feeling like this for a very long time where I was watching something really, really fundamentally catastrophic because the human brain has these windows of development and 
it is primed at certain points during this process of development to be engaged in certain things in the environment and with other human beings. And one of the things that the human brain is primed to do is to engage with its environment very fully and with the humans in that environment, because engaging with the, the humans and the environment tells the brain whether it's in a safe place, whether it's under any threat, any physical threat. This little girl was so immersed in her dopamine synthesis that was going on in her developing brain that she wasn't even checking her father's face to see if I was safe. She wasn't checking the environment. She was just in this world of technology. And I realized then that we are really in deep trouble because the more children that this is happening to, we actually, we're stopping the natural DNA development that should be occurring. It's driven by DNA that should be occurring across this child's development stages. And, you know, there's not a rewind. You can't press a button and say, wow, you know, during the COVID years, we didn't see a lot of other people and, you know, children really were compromised from interactions. Let's just rewind and redo that. The brain doesn't do that because at the age of about 10, there's something called apoptosis that occurs in the brain. And that's a fancy word for programmed cell death. And what the brain does at that point, at about 10, 11, it says to itself, okay, what neurons and um, synapses have been used a lot and which haven't been used a lot? And the ones that haven't been used a lot just become pruned. And so the child no longer has access to the capacities that those neural networks were starting to lay down. So that's why children who start, you know, practicing music and singing and doing, um, you know, specialized sports at really young ages have an advantage because apoptosis doesn't occur in those areas that they have been focused and where there's been concentrated cognitive activity. And so I, I'm very fearful of what's going to happen in the future because when these children that have been immersed in technology so deeply get to the age of 10 and 11, what's going to be pruned? Human communication. But, yeah. Checking your environment, making sure you're safe. It's extremely concerning. And then, of course, we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the next stage of development. And that happens as the the brain gets older um, and is the last part of the brain to develop. Uh, And with men, it ends at about 26, 27. And for women, it's about 23, 24. So it explains why more men are in jail than women. Uh, because women have, you know, their prefrontal cortex develops before the male prefrontal cortex or finishes developing. So what is going to happen now if this prefrontal cortex isn't getting the stimulation it needs? It's not being exposed to diverse views. It's not being exposed to anything but echo chambers. How is that going to affect the development of this very specialized part of the brain, the part of the brain that actually makes us human and allows us to make the kinds of decisions that have our long-term health and safety and well-being in mind? So we have a number of issues that need to be addressed along this continuum. And I don't see enough people speaking to this challenge because for one reason, I suspect that not many people um, understand its devastating effects. And I think I can thank my, my examination of the subject to my psychology background, partly because I understand those, you know, those windows of development but also because most people that have stumbled upon this disaster know that solving this challenge, what's involved? There are so many different factors to take into account, and it truly is devastating from a long-term perspective in relation to neuroplasticity because everyone speaks about neuroplasticity as being this wonderful thing, and it is. But the dark side is that when it changes, it's really difficult to change it back. You're, You're starting people out now on a bad footing. By by Correct. letting letting kids immerse themselves in this 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 it's 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 almost like a Vegas casino of information, you know, with with bright lights and great, bells. That's a great analogy, it really. And, is. It, it, <laughs> it is. And then when they get to adulthood, the 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 barrage doesn't stop though, because mm. now you've not only got too much information, but you've got people who are consciously using the the flow of information for, you know, profit means, geopolitical means, you know, all sorts of different means where, where you know, in, up to and including the weaponization of information by nation states. And 
you talked about Into the Shallows, which I think is an amazing book. And one of the things that we talk about, one of the things that we do a lot in our work is try to help people become aware of cognitive biases that they that impact yes. their decision making. And as you know, one of one of the big ones is availability bias. So we tend to give much more credence to whatever information we've recently had access to or information that we've had heard from multiple directions saying the same thing. And you know, you've now got you've now got state actors like the Russians most notably who figured out how to weaponize that and how to bombard people with messages through social media. And I'm stunned when I encounter people who are otherwise intelligent people and otherwise, you know, people that you wouldn't think would be swayed by, you know, Kremlin propaganda that are unknowingly mm-hmm. vocalizing things that 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 are have consciously been put before them by by the Russians. And I'm not getting it's not a conspiracy theory or anything like that. This is this is just this I'm you know, kudos to the Russians for having having figured out how to weaponize this more successfully than than their their other peer states like the US, the UK, China and stuff. But I, I, I only bring this up as is an extreme example of something that happens at a lot of other levels too, with Facebook, with you know, Twitter, all of these things, you know, figuring out how how to A continue that dopamine fix that now is programmed there from childhood, but then B, how to basically manipulate the conversation in whatever way they want to by 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 using this lack of deep thinking and this this fallback onto whatever I've heard latest and most. Yeah. And, and if you think about children who want to fit in, you know, yes. as they move to that year 10 and above, you know, they're, they're moving to the social media world, aren't they? They're moving away from little little games that they play, but then they're into the live social media and everything Bryce just talked about. And we look at TikTok and how the influence that has on children, we're almost dumbing down humanity, let alone nations with this capability. It's very worrying. Unfortunately, that's true, Marcus. And there's another aspect to this as well. There are two other things that I'd like to address. The one is that um, we get used to that dopamine hit. So we actually build up a tolerance for it. And uh, I suggest anybody who doesn't believe this watches a movie from the olden days. Try and get a movie even 10 or 20 years old or even a documentary you know, from, from a while ago and watch that documentary and see how slow it seems. <laughs> it just goes so slowly because now the frames don't change really quickly. We're not getting that same hit. And so it seems boring to us. Um, and that's, that's a huge problem. Um, the other little experiment they can do is try and have a deep and meaningful conversation in a room with a TV that's on, even if the sound is off. Try and do that. And get yeah. your children to experiment with that is actually impossible because the brain yeah. will want to look at those moving pictures. That's just part of our DNA survival strategy. So those are just two ways to know that we just can't actually avoid this if we are in that space. But there's something else that I think is really important. And um, you may know about some of the research behind decision fatigue. And there has been, you know, there were arguments against decision fatigue that it didn't really exist. And the research is pretty pretty robust in relation to the neurobiology of decision making. So let me just step back from this for a moment. Let's imagine you've got a decision to make. Normally you have a few variables that you have to choose between. Okay. You don't have this infinite amount of variables. You've got a few topics or a few concepts or a few ideas that you are looking at and you're weighing them up and then you're making a decision related to those areas. What we have today, we have something that is similar to decision fatigue, but I call it choice fatigue. And choice fatigue is where where you are exposed to an infinite infinite number of choices. And this happens on social media. And women are particularly vulnerable to this. So they will look at all these different choices that they have. And they actually are infinite because the marketing specialists have, have figured out how to find your little echo chamber and how to position whatever it is that you're looking for, whether it's weight loss or younger looking skin or more energy. And you are given these infinite number of choices. And every single one of those choices is also telling you that you're not good enough. So you have a feeling of I'm not okay. And you have a feeling of, hey, maybe this is going to be the option. So this is different to decision fatigue because decision fatigue, as I said, has a number of variables that you're choosing between. Choice fatigue is an infinite number of variables that you 
feel like you have to choose between, but you never come to the end of them. And none of the choices ever make you feel better because the, the research that has looked at people making decisions has, decided, has, has suggested that the more options you have, the less satisfied you are with your final decision. So now we have this on steroids in terms of, of social media and technology because the choices are just never ending. Each of them requiring an energy output. So taking all these variables together, we really have some big channel challenges on our hands and um, I'm not entirely sure how we're going to, to deal with them. It's, it's, it's really troubling on a number of levels and it is overwhelming. And we see this in our work with clients is that, you know, one of the, one of the things I saw in my previous life as, as a business journalist is how frequently when companies, and I'm talking big global corporations, were dealing with multiple complex problems that a new CEO would be brought in to kind of right the ship. And in so many cases, not all, but in so many cases, their reaction would be to do something completely unrelated to the problems that they were brought in to solve, to go in an entirely different direction. And, you know, I think it's down to the fact that when, when, you, when you look at how many decisions you have to make to, to solve a complex problem that's interrelated with other complex problems, I think a lot of people just become so overwhelmed mm -hmm that they just, they just say, right, you know, I'm not going to look, let's, let's pretend that's not happening. Yeah. And it's not just <laughs> companies. It's, it's, it's People. nation states. I mean, you look at, you look at the United States and you look at the problems we're dealing with, with gun violence and things like this, that it's almost, if you, if you zoom the camera out to 30,000 feet and look at it objectively, it's stunning that we've been dealing with them for decades and have, have not even, you know, yes. come close to, to addressing them. But it's because part of it's, you know, people lack the political will, but part of the reason they lack the political will is because, you know, it would be hard to address these things yes. and a lot of decisions would have to be made. And so people just kind of kick the can down the road and we do that with our finances. We do it with, with controversial issues and it's very, it's very distressing. It is distressing. And I think one of the things that I've been trying to inject um, some lightness or some positivity into the sobering conversation because I have it with a number of people. Um, I say to them that one of the areas that we need to get more involved in just personally is actually being involved with nature. And they look at me as if I'm a little odd because of course climate change is something that's, you know, go out into nature now you see how everything's different. But there, there is something about nature that, that actually soothes the human spirit and the human central nervous system. It doesn't just soothe us, it actually heals us. And it also allows us to be more creative. Now, yeah. I actually wrote a blog about this a while ago for, for a client or a colleague, and then I just reposted it on my blog. And it goes into a lot of detail with a lot of research to support it, that our immersion in nature is actually a soothing experience. And if ever anybody need, needed soothing, we need it now. And the only thing you have to do is you have to leave your mobile phone at home to be able to enjoy that. And you have to live through the discomfort of feeling bored and irritable. And you have to allow yourselves to see the light drifting through the leaves, to see the squirrel, to see whatever it is that nature is showing you. Because slowly but surely what happens is we can actually reset our, our central nervous system and we allow our parasympathetic nervous system to override our sympathetic nervous system. And this is extremely important because when we use the words burnout, Burnout relates to, um, you know, cables, frying. And if you think about the nervous system, the nervous system is made up of all these interconnecting cables. But one of the things that very few people know is that the central nervous system is actually a very complex amalgam of all of these cables. But this, the, the parasympathetic nervous system is actually more robust than the sympathetic nervous system. Because the parasympathetic nervous system, that's the rest and digest nervous system, was supposed to be used more than the stress mm. nervous system, which is the sympathetic nervous system. So when we have the SNS on all the time, 
it burns out really, really quickly because it isn't as robust. It was only supposed to be used for short periods of time. And as an example, um, the stress response is only supposed to last for between 30 to 60 um, seconds because, look, the tiger either caught you and you didn't have to have the stress response anymore or otherwise you escaped. Now you've got people who are living their whole life in, with the stress response firing continuously. Yeah. You're, you're, you're speaking to the converted here. I The Pacific Ocean is 500 feet that way and Redwood Forest is 500 feet that way from where I'm sitting right now. And I... This was our weekend house before the pandemic. We moved here full time when the pandemic started. And it's it's amazing because I have seen every day what you're talking about, Delia. It's amazing how I can be completely overwhelmed with decisions. And, and Marcus knows we're doing a lot of heavy lifting in a lot of different areas. And if I can just get out my front door and, and walk to the beach, it's like hitting the reset button and rebooting the computer. It's called Mother Nature for a reason, isn't it? It's called Mother Nature for a reason. And I think if we just, you know, if we ignore all the other disasters, and I mean, this is a very sobering conversation, but if we try and ignore that on a daily basis and just focus on, on what you're speaking about now, just resetting, doing that reset. And there's some research to support the fact that after three days of no technology, you rarely hit a real reset button. And that's mm. it's called the three-day effect. And that's really interesting. There's an interesting um, audio book on that. So I think if we just start embracing nature more, we will actually feel that relief and that, that stress reduction that you felt yourself, Bryce. And then you start craving that because then that is something that actually is soulless and it feels like it's nourishing you. Whereas, and then it becomes easier to make decisions, doesn't it? Because then you're making decisions from a more a clearer perspective. I don't think that the human brain, we know that the human brain isn't capable of making decisions continuously throughout the day. And that's where the decision fatigue um, research came in. After a certain period of time, the brain does one of two things. It chooses either the easiest option, um, which is generally a habitual response, or otherwise it does nothing. It hunkers down. And so we want to get past that and be able to extend that neural energy for as long as possible. And nature helps us do that. Oh, this is such a fascinating conversation. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, let's talk about how, how the pandemic has kind of contributed to our mental exhaustion and then what we can do about it to kind of get back uh, and make better decisions. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. Delia, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I want to, to ask you, what impact has the pandemic had on all of this in your mind? Bryce, big question, big answer, and we still don't really know. I think we're part of this huge experiment, and I think in decades <laughs> to come, we're going to see the outcome of it. Part of the challenge we've had, um, I actually wrote a blog post about this, about why the pandemic stress was different to any other kind of stress that we've had because I think most of the other stress that we have, you know, we either learn to live with it and it's ongoing and we kind of manage it and we understand what the consequences of the stress is going to be, okay, whether it's a political campaign, whether it's a sickness, you know, not COVID. Um, so we've kind of had some kind of a framework for that. But the pandemic was completely different because it led to countries behaving in a very – um, in a panicky way, which, you know, there's an argument for and against that. And I would still like to see the data in probably five or six years' time on whether that really worked, although the data, I think, is quite, is quite muddy at this point. But what happened with, this, with the COVID was that we didn't know where it came from. We didn't know what its effects were going to be. We didn't know exactly who was susceptible. There were so many unknowns. And the brain is continuously looking for a pattern and it couldn't find a pattern anywhere. 
you know, one country was doing this, another country was doing that. Some countries were saying no lockdown, who was doing the best thing. It became a political issue. There was no pattern. So it wasn't as if we could say, okay, this is what we know is going to happen. There's a consequence to this. This is the end point. There was no end point. Even today, there's no end point. So people speak about COVID as being, uh, you know, a PTSD experience. And that really assumes that it is in the past because that's <laughs> exactly. what happens. I think that it really isn't in the past. I think that it's still on people's minds. When, when I go to places and I see people with masks on, um, and this is not a criticism against them wearing masks. It's just an observation of the fact that we're not past this. It's still very much present in all of our lives, whether we're choosing to wear a mask or not. Every time you see a mask, every time you hear of someone that's, that, that's sick, it's, it's ever present. The challenge with the brain when it's under stress, as I said earlier, you know, there's a 30 to 60 seconds that it's supposed to respond in within that time period. Now, emotion travels faster than thought, and this is related to the stress response. Because if emotion didn't travel faster than thought, you wouldn't start running until you'd thought about whether there is a tiger. So the emotional fallout from COVID is huge because before you can actually think about whether it's rational, whether you should be scared, whether your immune system is in good shape or not, you're responding from an emotional perspective. Now, what does that mean in the brain, in the actual functioning of the brain? What it means is that you're faced with some information about COVID, and this is, you know, throughout the pandemic and even now, you're faced with this information, you think, oh, okay, have I experienced this before? You know, check on your memory banks, on the knowledge that you've got. Oh, no, we've never experienced this before. Hold on a second. You know, the Spanish flu, they said, is just as bad. So now you've got that memory. Maybe you go down the rabbit hole of that. Then your prefrontal cortex steps in again and goes, hold on a second, you know, is there a pattern here? And this is where a whole lot of conspiracy theories came in because, the pattern detection machine was, was on. So there was a constant backwards and forwards between your memory, what's going to happen, what happened in the past, what can happen in the future. And this is the challenge with the brain being a time machine. It takes you straight into the future and straight back into the past. Um, and sometimes there's no context. And in the situation with COVID, there was no context in, in the sense that we had not experienced this before. And I think that's one of the reasons it led to people feeling so exhausted. It's one of the reasons people are still exhausted. Remember, neural energy, continuously, yep. social media, the news. And even today, they want to start going, digging up where did COVID come from? Who's going to be, you know, made responsible for that? So there are a number of reasons why this became a huge challenge. In addition, it was related to people that we love. So if you had parents or children or friends that were susceptible, you felt even more guilty, especially if, for example, you didn't want to be vaccinated. Then you were made to feel like you were a terrible person. So there were all these ramifications for all these decisions and all these policies and lockdown, especially in Australia, was a huge challenge for so many people. Um, I think Melbourne had seven or eight lockdowns and someone that I spoke to said he realized that his his end point I think was at lockdown number six he then felt that he couldn't cope in anymore mentally so you know Bryce we're still in the experiment well it's so interesting because speaking of experiments the I don't know if this is true I heard this from 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 a guest we had on many months ago and I I just realized I've never run the traps to to, to read about it um but if, but maybe someone, if, if, if you know about this experiment, uh, put the, put, send us a note in the comments. I was told early on in the pandemic when particularly looking at the UK was the poster child for this, of changing its policies day by day. And, and you know, people would start a Monday being told this, that this is how we're going to deal with this. And by Wednesday, it would be something else. And by Friday, it would be something else. And that was the extreme example, but that was happening in, in many countries around the world, uh, including the U.S. too. And I was talking with a, with a clinical psychologist who told me that back in the 1970s, when you could still get away with this sort of thing, a team of psychologists had the idea, you know, we, we try to, to, to study animal behavior by, you know, putting them in cages and electrocuting those cages when they do something wrong or right. What would happen if we just started randomly electrocuting them and it wasn't tied to a particular stimulus yes. that it wasn't designed to, 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 to lead to an optimal behavior. What if we just randomly electrocuted parts of the cage 
And what they found, according to the, to the psychologist who told me this, is that after a few days or weeks, I don't remember what it was, that they were doing it on dogs, the dogs would just lie down and let themselves be electrocuted because they, they were just overwhelmed. And his point was that that's what's happening to a lot of people now, mm-hmm. yes. is the rules are changing so much. The, what's right, what's wrong is changing so much that a lot of people... And you saw that you started to see people just say, I don't care. You know, I don't care if I get COVID, I get COVID, you know, and it's because they just became overwhelmed by trying to find, make sense of this. And there wasn't, there wasn't a way to, and I, I I just find that fascinating. And apathy becomes the natural behaved state because there's no other alternative that they've gone through all the options in the head. And every time they go down a, a road, there's a blocker, they turn around again, they get hit again. And it's just so overwhelming that, there's nothing you can do. Ultimately, there's so many people I think felt like that and you see that and hear that. Correct. And I think that is that that research is spot on, Bryce. That research has been done. Um, I don't think it would pass ethics today in terms of the animals, but you know, we can't do that with humans. But as I said, we're we're in this experiment and I think this is exactly what happened to people because they really just became overwhelmed. There were just too many options. I had a particular moment myself where I really felt my brain really rebel. I had to, I had an occasion to have a look at the the rules for New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria. And I was looking at these rules because I had to travel between these three states or was supposed to travel between those three states at this particular point. And I was checking all the rules and trying to align them so that I could travel. I actually sat back from my desk. I can remember it very clearly. I have a standing desk. I actually just stood back and I said, I'm walking away because my brain could not actually fathom out how to work through all these different rules. And I phoned phoned somebody and then she said to me, she said, well, look, at this point in time, that's the case. But we think that tomorrow we're going to make another change. (laughs) So I was just stranded and I'm, I'm... you know, I had that feeling of I'm just going to stop now because there's absolutely no way I can work through this challenge. You can't. This is a moving target. You can't deal with it. And I think that's mm. one of the reasons that people became so so distressed. And this is something else that a lot of people don't don't know. And when this when the pandemic started, I actually spoke to a colleague who's also interested, you know, in the human brain and and so on. And we often have quite sobering and honest conversations. And I said to him you do know what the fallout from this is going to be. And he said, yes, I do know what the fallout is going to be. And I said, how many people do you think know? And he said, I think the guys at the top know. And I said, how do they know? They know nothing about neuroscience. They're just putting out policies and putting out fires and competing with other world leaders. And he said, yeah, you're right. Maybe they don't know. But what I was referring to is that a brain that is placed under chronic stress, this is stress that continues for long periods of time, Within the limbic system, this is the emotional center, if we can really break it down basically, what happens is that the limbic system becomes incapable of modulating emotion. So Mm. that seesaw, that natural seesaw that happens during the day, something good happened, oh, that wasn't so good, you know, oh, something good happened, something bad happened, and then we just modulate that. That breaks down. And so people become very much more susceptible to things like anxiety and depression. Mm And when I had a look at the stats related to how anxiolytic use went up and sleeping tablet use went up and antidepressant use went up, that's exactly what happened. It followed the trajectory of, you know, COVID. So when people have been left with this legacy of COVID, which many people probably don't want to admit that they have this sense of unease, anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, That is just the brain's way of making sure that you stay vigilant and that you don't get too happy and that you keep on being alert for what could be happening next. This is some, nobody's, nobody's at fault for having these challenges. This happened deep within the structure of the human brain during this experience. And unfortunately, every single time you experience a bout of depression, you become more susceptible to experiencing another one. And that's simply down to neural, neural pathways again. So that is part of this huge experiment. And then, you know, you take children 
into this, you bring children into this this equation. Parents, many parents feel guilty about, you know, depriving their children of their friends, not being able to go to school, not being able to go to play school. I spoke to somebody the other day who said, and I don't have any um, stats on this, but she said that she has read something that says that children born during the pandemic have been much, much slower to start speaking. Yeah, I've read that mm -hmm. too. And that would make sense to me. You know, it's interesting looking at this as an experiment, which I think is is fascinating, if, if troubling. One of the things that strikes me is obviously we have cultural differences, that, but yes. I'm curious from a neuroscience point of view and from a psychological point of view, how do you, why are some countries, and I'm thinking most notably of like Japan and Singapore and South Korea, able to, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, make very clear decisions, you know, Japan, masking's mandatory when vaccine comes out, vaccine's mandatory, travel's restricted, but then didn't shut their countries down, didn't go into lockdown, didn't destroy their economies, have had relatively few deaths, are basically weathering the storm, you know, particularly, you know, Singapore, like is, is an alternate reality, and New Zealand too. And, you know, why are some countries able to just kind of respond rationally, so seemingly, when others are so, are and people are willing to go along with that more or less, whereas other countries, you know, bounce from one wall to another? It's a good question, and I don't know if I can answer it fully, but I think it definitely stems from the leader and mm -hmm. prior decisions. So if, mm -hmm. it's a, if it's a society that has previously been become used to very strict controls, then it mm -hmm. will definitely step up and follow those same controls that the that the government is is stipulating. I think in countries where individualism is is honoured, or you know, we see that as being a huge benefit. I think those countries had a bigger problem because yeah. there were too many people that said, "No, as an individual, I have this right, and this right supersedes everything else." Yeah, and we saw a lack of trust. A lack of trust as well. And I think that is, that is to do with, you know, the previous leadership. If you didn't trust the previous leadership, then maybe you say to yourself, hold on a second, why do I have to listen to them? I don't have to. And I think also probably the infiltration of social media and how social media manipulated the situation. So I think there are a number of confluencing factors that impact, you know, how people responded during during the pandemic. But I definitely think it, it, it stems from the leader, previous um, situations. I think, for example, Singapore. I think um, Singapore is used to a benevolent dictator. You know, right. under those circumstances, you'd have people that go, okay, we trust this guy. Things have turned out pretty well. Um, I don't have a problem doing this. I think it looks like it's a reasonable request. Other things that have been requested have turned out well. Let's just follow this. But if it hasn't been yeah. the case, that's where I think we have a problem. So I think there are a few factors there, Bryce. It's so interesting. And I say this to people, and sometimes it has disturbed people. When I used to do in-person presentations, you know, before COVID, I would look look at the audience and I'd say to them, you know, I see all of you here, but I also see each of you are a body that's carrying a brain. And they'd look at me really weirdly. And then I'd say, look, everything, that, what brought you here was your brain. You know, and then I'd go through a little story about that. But this is something that we forget. A leader is a person with a brain. That brain is susceptible to all of the same things that all of us are susceptible to. It's not as if they're immune from biases, that they're immune from brain degradation, that they're immune from poor sleep and not enough exercise, brain aging. All of those things contribute to that brain and the decision that the, that brain is making. So that also is part of is part of the whole whole discussion. How how competent and healthy is the brain making the decision? That's so fascinating too, because really, if you look at Singapore, more more than just a, a benevolent dictatorship, it's a technocracy. It's really not run by a leader so much as by a, a team of of anonymous people that the people have learned to trust because they, you know, it works theoretically make decisions yeah. based on rational, logical considerations more often than political and emotional considerations. There's a there's something to unpack there probably there is too. A whole another podcast. I want to finish ask a question. We we talked about burnout. We talked about chronic stress. And I love that phrase how technology is trumping our DNA. 
And it's quite a depressing story and future we've, we've gone through. What's the road back from this? What is it that you know, we um, humans can do to start correcting this path that we've been taken down? Marcus, good question. I think we have to go right deep within ourselves because our cells are actually exhausted. Mm -hmm. You know, our mitochondria are not functioning really well anymore. That drives ATP production. That, that drives how much neural energy you have. It drives your, it drives your physical energy as well. So chronic stress, when it bathes our cells, um, you know, either in the brain or the body, leads to enormous amount of challenges. We have, you know, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, a whole lot of inflammatory diseases, even cancer have been linked to cortisol. And that is because of what's happening at the cellular level. So just to mention that most people are not aware of the fact that adrenaline and cortisol don't just appear out of the ether. They are made from nutrients. Many of the same nutrients that are required for energy production within the cell many of the same nutrients that are required for serotonin synthesis, dopamine synthesis, acetylcholine, melatonin. So when we get right down to the cellular level, that's where we actually have to start healing from burnout. We have to make sure that our cells are getting enough of the right nutrients in the right quantities on a regular basis to make sure that we can build ourselves up cell by cell again. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that we can ignore the psychological components. You know, we spoke about going into nature. We spoke about being very circumspect about collecting information. So that's the psychology aspect of it. The neuroscience and physiology aspect of it is really looking deep within ourselves. When you say this to people, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what a healthy diet is. And I go, yeah, yeah, you think you do. <laughs> Once again, if, you pop, if you're following popular media, you could be following any one of a number of diets for a number of different reasons, you know whatever it could be, weight loss, um, often for men it's building muscle, um, intermittent fasting is, is the, the popular you know, um, diet on the block at the moment, ketogenic diet as well. When you know what your cells really, really need, then you can really start having a discussion and you can really start seeing, okay, my cells need these things. And one of the things that I often get asked about is essential fats. And essential fats are critically important for body and brain function. But 95, if not more, percent of the population is deficient in these essential fats. They're critical for every single cell membrane that we have. And in our brain, 22% of the 60% of the dry weight of the brain should be made up of these essential fatty acids. So you cannot expect a brain to function function optimally if it doesn't have the right fats as a good starting point. Then you have the right kinds of protein, then you have the right kinds of carbohydrates, and then on top of that, you supplement with evidence-based dietary supplements. And most people swallow these dietary supplements like there's no tomorrow. And interestingly enough, by 2025, the dietary supplement industry just targeting stress management supplements is going to be worth over 60 billion US dollars. Now that is a wow. very frightening number, especially when you consider there's a very, very small percentage of those dietary supplements that have got any evidence to support them. And I discovered right. that when I started my PhD, I did a systematic review that had this huge, well, exposed this huge knowledge gap. And I was like, wow, marketing is excellent for these products though. So yeah. a lot of people buy these products. There's a bit of a placebo effect. But oftentimes, many of these products can actually harm you and cause long-term challenges. So you have to really do this very wisely. This can't be something that you just throw something at. So Marcus, yeah, that's kind of like the long answer mm -hmm. to, you know, healing ourselves. We actually have to start at the cellular level. We can't just speak about, you know, this little strategy and that this tactic. And it's, it's not as simple as that. It's actually a long path back. And then we have to also keep in mind that this kind of situation does leave scars. None of us are going to walk away from the situation and be exactly the same age. <laughs> you know, we're not going to feel the same energy levels. We're not going to feel as hopeful as we did before this disaster. Because now we've stretched, we've grown, we've changed. We've seen the limits of our capacity to cope cognitively. We've also seen the lows, you know, the anxiety, the depression, the sleeplessness. So we will carry those scars with us. But in that is also a blessing because then you know how much you've actually coped with 
and how you've survived it. So that's the one thing. The second thing is you also know you've got to be very much more careful how, what you expose yourself to. And that brings us back again to the psychology of it. So we really have to take a multi, mm -hmm. multifactorial approach to this. You know, we have to heal at our cellular level. We have to be very mindful from a psychological perspective. And we have to be aware of the fact that we're fallible. We're human. And we're going to carry these lessons forward, hopefully, to serve us. That's amazingly good advice. And wow. Delia, where can people learn more about you and your work? I've sent a link to Marcus and I, I've got a little download that people can download. And I simply created it when COVID started because people said, what are you doing? How are you coping? And I said, look, these are certain things. These are tactics that I do every day because my overall strategy is to stay as healthy as possible and to thrive regardless of the circumstances. So I put together a seven point checklist and Marcus will share that in the, in the show notes so people can go and download it. They can go and read a little bit more about stress and they'll see what I do every single day myself. I've even got a checklist there to make sure what their meals need to contain. It's obviously not detailed, but they can look at it and go, wow, I didn't know that. Let's try this. Have a look at that. And just little practices to do every day. You know, I think as a species, we want that one big magical bullet. You know, we want that <laughs> one thing that we can do that will fix everything. And that's just naturally the brain's desire to save energy and trying to do things simply. But you can get wonderful results from doing little things consistently. And that's what the report's about. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, folks, we'll put it in the show notes. Check it out. Delia, thank you so much for being on the show. We barely scratched the surface, I sense, of what we could talk about. We'll have to have you back on again in the future. But thank you for sharing all of this with us and with our listeners today. Thank you, Bryce. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Marcus. I've really enjoyed our chat. Pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.